This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. You're back. You're you're back from your honeymoon in Amsterdam. I'm back, everyone. What did you do in Amsterdam? Everything. I've been led to believe that there are some local forms of recreation that are pretty cool. Welcome to Overdue. This is a podcast about the books that you've been meaning to read, as you may have guessed. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. And yeah, we're going to talk about Silas Marner this week by George Eliot, which mm-hmm. Andrew read. But mm-hmm. yes, I was not here last week. Thank you to Susanna for filling in. And um, I was disappointed that I think you only said that once. I only did the one. She gave me three. I only did the one. And it's like, I think I just was trying to help her through the po- the podcast recording yes. process. And I like sure. didn't. I didn't want to throw her off by making such a funny joke. You did a was, good like, job. She would laugh so hard that she wouldn't be able to to do the thing. Sure, and she did a she did a better job than you did at that at last week's podcast. Good. She, <laughs> she did more work for the for that one. Well, yeah, but, no, that is unquestionably true. <laughs> <laughs> but I also say that um my only two gripes were that you didn't say my wife more and that no one talked about Monte Cristo sandwiches. Yeah, see that seemed like the kind of low-hanging fruit that that I can't keep you from grabbing at, but <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> but with more control over the creative process, I can kind ah. of keep that kind of thing from happening. Okay. I see mm-hmm. how this works. Um, but yeah, so I was in Amsterdam. It was wonderful. Uh, Laura and I had a great time. Uh, it's a really cool city. What was you your sh- favorite thing that you did? I don't remember. Oh, that's their favorite thing that you did. I all I'll say is that <laughs> I found a television station that was just playing video of kittens cuddling while a clock ticked in the background. And I watched it for a solid 15 minutes before falling asleep on the couch. Huh. Amsterdam seems like they got stuff figured out. It was a pretty cool time. I mean, when I was in Japan, I watched with my friend, I watched a show about a young woman who like falls in love with a robot or something. It's like it's so Japanese soap operas are really good. So it seems like most countries have like our TV is just about troubled white men. Mostly Amsterdam's a cool city. It's great. It's beautiful. There's lots of museums. It's super old. There's canals. There's lots of beer but their commercials have refrains that are weird like you'll see a commercial for like eggs i don't know dutch i don't know what they were selling and then <laughs> and so eggs just as an example as an, an example example and then it, yeah and then it'll cut to like a commercial for heineken sure whatever everybody it's like advertising for bud or whatever and then there'll be another 10-second commercial for eggs after the Heineken commercial. So it goes eggs, beer, eggs? But it's like clearly... Like it's an, like, a, like an ABA sort of scheme for the commercials? And, and then on like my last day there, I, I, saw a, I saw a set of commercials that went ABAB. Like they tagged on to each other in a weird way i mean here in america at least when you're watching on hulu or whatever where they somehow never (laughs) seem to be able to show more than four ads at once you'll get like two ads in a row for the exact same thing that would make more sense or sometimes the same like if if you're watching in some app where there are lots of commercials like five or six then you might see the same ad Two times, but this is like, like non consecutively. This the same, is like, like a different ten second chunk that's just kind of going like, in case you forgot, eggs, eggs still here. <laughs> Repetition is key to learning. Buy eggs. <laughs> 
So that's Amsterdam. I fell asleep watching Cats, and most I saw a of, bunch of commercials. Most of what you talked about was about TV, so I hope that doesn't encompass the the entirety of what you did but i'm glad you had a good time (laughs) no i did a lot more and most of it was drink beer and eat stuff so nice good good radio is what that makes Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um but you read a book i did which is what we do on this year podcast Mm -hmm. so um you read a book called silas marner by george elliott great we should probably talk about george elliott huh we probably should uh craig did you know george elliott not a dude yeah, right. Her name is Marianne Evans. Sometimes Marion Evans, as she went by at times. I think that's got to be a thing where people just mispronounce your name all the time until you just give in and accept yeah, it. Yeah, that's just how it's spelled now. That's just what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, she was born in 1819, died in 1880. So she was born around the same time as some of the Bronte sisters, the Bronte sisters, uh, but they did not make it as long as she did. Um, and her pen name comes from, they think she chose George because of the dude, George Henry Lewis, that she had a 20-year relationship with. Um, Elliot, not sure. I saw one reading that was like... it's Is this the really the weird E-I-O one that doesn't... Uh. Owe it to you like like to l i owe it like what like and his last name is lewis so like get it yeah i think that's a bit of a stretch i don't know man i haven't read all the letters or (laughs) like the citations for that stuff but that seems like a bit of a stretch um she used a male pen name to uh ensure that people would take her works seriously so like many uh female authors operating in this approximate time period Though also like a lot of female authors operating in this time period, it later came out that she was a woman. Right after her first book, actually. So she had like, written a story or an essay as George Eliot that had been published, and then she wrote her first novel, Adam Bede. Adam Bede. And the, so people had, after the um, after her first book came out, people were speculating who George Eliot was, and then after Adam Bede came out, there's even more. And then there is this dude, Joseph Liggins, who stood up and said, I did it. I'm George Eliot. <laughs> I am the Batman. I'm Spartacus. <laughs> and like, isn't that just so white, dude? <laughs> Give me the confidence of a dude Man. to claim that this book is mine. And so she is, she was not going to have that. She, Joseph Ligon steps forward and she's like, actually, dude, it was me. It was me all along. <laughs> and um, yeah, of course, people were surprised, but it did not affect the popularity of her work. So, well, on that of, patriarchy. One of the reasons that she was surprised. So, there's this whole thing where she's growing up. She's like the second child of her parents, and her mom dies when she's 16 after she's been educated a bunch. There's, um, I found some references to the fact that maybe her dad invested so heavily in her education. Because he thought she was didn't wasn't pretty enough to have good marriage prospects. Oh boy! Um, yeah, so that's the thing. Um, while she's getting educated, she is getting exposed to some uh, ideas that lead her to end up like not going to church anymore and get her interested in other folks, philosophers who are kind of changing her notions of Christianity. This became a big source of strife within her family. Uh, her mom died when she was sixteen. And then she moved to help him with his, like, with the estate and stuff. And then her mom, he died when she was, like, 30, I think. Uh, So she starts writing for the Westminster Review, doing criticism uh, and other essay writing. And one of the reasons that she took the pen name, in addition to uh, people maybe thinking it was a man for a while, was that she wanted it separate from her writing as a critic. Okay. Uh, have it be judged on its own merits. I guess like a like a J.K. Rowling situation. I suppose Except that was now also I, like a dude pen. Yeah, name, Yeah, like right? I can't help but notice that these are all they all just happen to be dude pen names. Which sure, sure. Said like it's 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 not a bad business decision. I don't think for them in the time that they, for her. Well, uh, well, I guess J.K. Rowling and, like the time we live in now is still pretty <laughs> yeah. crappy. 
Um, she also probably picked a pen name because, and this was part of the shocking reveal when she stepped forward to, to claim it from John Liggins, who has the best name ever. John Liggins. Um, Get out of here, she, John Liggins. You don't have a Wikipedia page. <laughs> so she's in this marriage, not in an actual marriage, but in a relationship with this guy, George Henry Lewis, as we said. He's a philosopher, critic, and writer. And he was in an open marriage uh, with his wife not Marion Evans slash George Elliott. Like an actual open marriage, or he was like, yeah, I totally have an open marriage, baby. Well, he had, he had three kids with his wife, and his wife had four kids with another dude. So, okay. Uh, and so at he least was, it's open on both ends. Yes. Um, and they were pretty open about their relationship for, like, they even went on, like, a honeymoon, and people were not like it sounds seems like some people were like totally down with it and plenty of people were not so when she goes into writing novels there's this fear that people are not going to like take her seriously if they know about this because he's in all the literary circles too as she is um but then apparently that did not seem to be as big of a deal as people thought when they finally found out um there she write before she even starts writing novels she writes this essay in 1856 called silly novels by lady novelists which to me sounds like either a mcsweeney's or toast article yeah um, it sounds like a like like a baby eating sort of satire piece yeah she's it's an essay calling out what she deems are like crappy novels by uh, women writers, mostly ones that, and this connects to Eliot's like theory on realism. Um, How's this earnest criticism or jokey criticism? It's uh, it's earnest criticism. It's a it's a manifesto of what I don't want in novels. Um, okay, kind of like frippery and flouncery, and she even goes on to critique. Yeah, she critiques. <laughs> Hold on. Um, that might not be the word I'm looking wow. for. But she critiques the women who write these novels um, for perhaps, like, she even goes so far as to say that, like, education might, uh, or gives the impression that education would disimprove a woman by making her, like, conceited and, like, full of herself. I guess flouncery is kind of a slangy word, but... Okay. You're on thin ice. Okay, cool. That's one Only notice. 419 Google <laughs> results. Like, it's it's a word, but, like, not very much of one. So she was taking objection to these, like, romance novels uh, that she didn't think had very much merit. And she, again, thinks that the, the intelligent women writing these intelligent characters who, for all of their education, end up just, like, seeking more marriage or whatever... Um, she writes, a really cultured woman, like a really cultured man, is all the simpler and the less obtrusive for her knowledge. It has made her see herself and her opinions in something like just proportions. She does not make it a pedestal from which she flatters herself, that she commands a complete view of men and things, but makes it a point of observation from which to form a right estimate of herself. Hmm. Um, so she is objecting to what she considers frippery, um, and decides that she's going to write some better novels than that. <laughs> uh, and she writes, you know, seven novels, I think, total. As we said, Adam Bede, uh, Silas Munner's her third. Middlemarch is what, her fourth novel? Is it right in the middle? Because that would be good if it was. No, it's her sixth novel. Oh, okay, Sorry. man. All right. Yeah. Well, she had to march in the middle of her career to get there. To get to the book. To okay, cool. Got it. Uh... <laughs> Um, and that's, you know, so then she's, she's going for this idea of realism that is like you, you portray life as it is without any sort of exaggeration, without any sort of foolish expectations. Yeah. And that's, that's where, yeah, that's where she, that's the mode she's operating in through most of Silas Marner. Now there are events that happen that are like highly coincidental and you sort of see the possibly the invisible hand of god moving in in some things now she did say to her publisher about silas marner it came to me first of all as a sort of legendary tale suggested by my recollection of having once seen a linen weaver with a bag on his back but as my mind dwelt on the subject i became inclined to a more realistic treatment and there's a bunch of scholarship on 
like the parts of this book that are not strictly Elliot realism and are more of like a fairy tale or a moral fable. Yeah, um, I could. Yeah, there there are definitely some bits of that that we can talk about if you want. Yeah, um, and so I'll, I'll kind of wrap up on her if, in as much time as we have because there's a lot of scholarship on her. Um, she Lewis died before she did. She edited his last work. She did marry a dude twenty years younger than her later. Nice. Um, nice. <laughs> Uh, unfortunately, she died a few months after that due to complications from a couple of different illnesses. She does; She's not buried in Westminster Abbey because of her denial of traditional Christian faith, but she does have a stone in Poet's Corner of Westminster Abbey. Um, and then Poet's scholarship- Corner sounds like the place like behind the school where all the... <laughs> all the artsy kids would go and smoke weed. It's like Chaucer and a bunch of dudes just like smoking. Yeah. Yeah, watching watching the foot the footy matches mm-hmm. but not playing. Mm-hmm. That's what they call it, right? Sure. I was in Europe, I know what it is. Um and uh yeah, the the thing that revived interest in her as I think in modern scholarship is Virginia Woolf um was a huge champion of her work. And then there's a lot of scholarship on Middlemarch, which we'll have to do at some point for the show. Um, And I did find there was a biography of her published in 2012 um, that basically called out the some third, like three dozen biographies that had come before. (laughs) Basically, like, you haven't done your homework. You're taking a lot of things for granted. Um, Some, like, interpretations of information in her letters uh, the reasons why uh, her not husband, Mr. Lewis, like never actually divorced his wife. Um, all sorts of things that like Elliot is someone that people are still devoting a lot of time and research to because she had such a large like body of not just novels, but other, other writings. Work. Yeah, and, stuff, and, and editing cool. and all kinds of stuff. Yeah, it's kind of amazing to me the the way that stuff gets surfaced and resurfaced throughout like literary history like we we pretty frequently talk about people who did stuff in the in the like 18th and 19th centuries who only became really famous in the modern era because some contemporary author was like a big champion of their work oh or, sure yeah, something yeah like that well and and how many of like how many greek playwrights have we never read because nobody saved their books Nobody picked their books out of a rock or whatever we found there. <laughs> yeah, I don't know right. how the Renaissance worked. <laughs> uh, and one last note about Silas Marner. It was a, did you know that Andrew was adapted into a 1994 Steve oh, Martin the Steve comedy? Martin movie? Yeah, I knew that. It's called, called A Simple Twist of Fate. It starred Gabriel Byrne, Laura Linney, Catherine O'Hara, and Stephen Baldwin. Wow. Alongside Steve Martin, who wrote it. And it has a 43% on Rotten Tomatoes. Trying to figure, like, Stephen Baldwin, boy, he's probably the least of the Baldwin brothers, right? (laughs) I guess it'd be between him and Daniel Baldwin. Is there a Bobby Baldwin? There's a Billy Baldwin. Is there a Michael Baldwin? No. Well, I mean, if there are those Baldwins, they're not the Baldwin brothers. Okay. (laughs) There's Alec, Daniel, William, and Stephen. Okay, sure. All right. And uh, I don't know. Like, it, it's the, the last thing I want to say, I guess, about George Eliot is how badly it sucks that, like, the, the, that old meme of somebody, like, somebody being a feminist because they're ugly or something. Like, they. Oh, yeah. 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 There's like, a. There's and, that, a... and that still happened. Like, to this day, that stuff happened. Like, oh, if they could get laid, they wouldn't be angry feminists. Blah, it's... Blah. <sighs> It really stinks. Um, And there's this like weird quote from Henry James about her where he talks about how like unappealing he thinks her face is and then says, now in this vast ugliness resides a most powerful beauty, uh, which in a very few minutes steals forth and charms the mind so that you end as I ended in falling in love with her. Yes, behold me in love with this great horse-faced blue stocking. Get out of here, Henry Good James. Lord, you ding dong. Like what are you what are you talking about? <laughs> Just go away. Like Ugh. yeah, there's there's all sorts of scholarship on how 
dude said a bunch of crappy things about her. And then she wrote a book called Middlemarch, which everyone, a lot of people consider one of the best books ever written. So it's like, sit down, dudes. Yeah, come on, dudes. You've, we'll you've sit had down your, with you. We're dudes. Like, yeah. I'll sit down. I'm a dude. <laughs> all right. I want to tell you about this this book and all the stuff that happens in it. But first, probably we should take a break. Yeah, that's the thing we do. Break. Andrew, Craig, I got a lot of plans this year to mix things up and shake them up, and uh, I would like my next move to be a website dedicated to the Baldwin brothers. Can you help me? I guess you could use Squarespace, right? What's that? Squarespace is a website that that helps you make websites. They give you pre-made templates that you can use so you don't have to design any of your own stuff from scratch because if you did that it probably look bad and you don't want a website that looks bad well and if i want to arrange my baldwin brother photos in a particular way like i there's there a template that i could use for that oh yeah there's templates for all kinds of stuff and that you can also uh there's a drag and drop design tool you can use to uh, arrange stuff just so so if there's a template you kind of like but it's not showing enough baldwin for you or if you need to do like a gallery of non Baldwin brothers for that... comparison, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like Baldwin's not Baldwin's, yeah, Baldwin, yeah, people who are Baldwin. That's but my not new Baldwin website. Brothers. Baldwin's not Baldwin's. It's dedicated to Baldwin brothers that are not Baldwin brothers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> so they give you all that stuff. They give you an all-in-one platform, so you never have to install patches or upgrades. Don't do that. That's dumb. <laughs> don't get into don't get into any code or anything. Just you want you want someone else to worry about that. Okay. Um, you get a free domain. You get award winning twenty four seven customer service. Cool. That uh, Craig and I have availed ourselves of many times. True. You can use it for e commerce. You can use it for Baldwin Brothers. You can use it for your wedding. There's all kinds of stuff you can use it. If for. If you're marrying a Baldwin brother. If you are marrying into the Baldwin dynasty. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Yeah, yes. So. <laughs> You can uh, start your free trial today at squarespace.com and enter offer code overdue to get 10% off your first purchase. That's 10 whole percent, not eight, not nine, not 11. It's 10, 10%. 10%. Squarespace. Squarespace.com offer code overdue. Do it. (laughs) Silas Marner. What do you know about him? Have you read this book before? No, Were you I've supposed never... to, and you didn't. No, I that's don't... a pretty long list. <laughs> I don't. That is a long list. I don't know that I'd heard about this book until Catherine found it funny that they did a wishbone about it. <laughs> did they do a wishbone about Silas? Martin? <laughs> I'm fairly certain that they did a wishbone about Silas Martin. Was Wishbone and... Silas? He would have had to have been. I mean, there are other characters in it, but yeah, that would be really sad. Okay. Um, um. So okay, Silas Marner. He's a he's a weaver. He weaves wh- things. Okay. And he's also kind of a loner. He's a, he's an outcast in the town. Uh, he lives in this town for most of the book. He lives in this town called Ravelo. Um, but before this, he lives in another town, kind of a slum, where he. Um, is part of like a Calvinist congregation and he has like a best friend and he has a woman who he's going to marry. And they're like people in the congregation start to become suspicious of him. And I think it's partly because he like dabbles in herbs and like, Oh, what would have, so he's would... been to Amsterdam. No, 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 not that, not that kind of herb. Like <laughs> the, the, he dabbles in what would have passed for medicine in those days, I guess. Okay, I know sure. that there are medicinal uses for the kind of herb you're talking about, but I still don't quite think that's what it is. But okay, and this is in when, like, turn of the 19th century? Um, yeah, it's, it's it's in there. It's not. I don't think. <laughs> well, like, I they don't say explicitly, and I don't think it's super important to the book, like exactly when in this that it takes place. Well, it was written in sixty one. I don't think it's set in sixty one. No, I think That's it's. Like, I think it's before that. It's pre industrial revolution. Yeah, or... like pre and during. 
Okay, cool. That's because, that's like, kind of what I wanted to know. Because toward the okay. end of the book, like by the end of the book, like thirty ish years have passed since the beginning of it. And, Great. Um, okay. And Silas goes back to his old hometown, and there is like a factory there, and it really sucks, and it's making everybody sick. Okay, but, good yeah, to know. It, it's like during the Industrial Revolution, but the place where most of the action is is set apart from it. Like it doesn't. Sure. You know sure. Sure. I mean? Sure. Okay, so Silas has this friend. He has this. He has this future wife. He uh, so the the deacon or the the leader. I forget what the exact name is, but like the leader of this church that he's a part of is sick, and people are kind of sitting watch over him. Um, and one night when Silas is watching over him, he like falls asleep because he's super tired, and he wakes up and like the church's money has been stolen and the guy is dead. Whoa. And uh, like he died of natural causes, and I don't think people are really suspicious of that. But they believe, like, because of evidence that was planted by his supposed best friend, they believe that Silas stole the money from the church. No, and Silas. so he becomes he becomes a pariah in his little community, and then his girl leaves him, and then his girl marries his one-time best friend. Whoa! So that's kind of enough to sour him on human beings. <laughs> Is it human beings en genre, human beings... Um, well, you go to Europe and you get all fancy? Human beings vis-a-vis the church. <laughs> Shut up. Stop talking like that guy from the second Matrix movie. <laughs> the, the Merovingian? Yeah, whatever. <laughs> Ergo. Uh, the architect? I could rattle off all those characters. No, um, stop. Stop it. Where are the those... snake, the guys with the snake hair called? The snake, the snake hair vampires? Yeah. The white dreads dudes? Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. Oh, so is you he don't like... know? No. You don't know is... what they're called? Okay, great. No. Uh, the, is he specifically upset at just, like, all people or, like, people in their relationship to the church. Well, this like, this does, it does two things to him. It one, like makes him sort of fall away from church and faith because obviously these these people did him bad. Yeah. And like, that's not very Christ-like, huh? Huh? Huh. Interesting. Hmm. Um, And also he's just been betrayed by the two people in his life that he's closest to, like totally, totally betrayed, especially by his best friend. So like at a macro level and a micro level, He's gotten screwed. <laughs> yeah. So he okay. moves he moves to this small village called uh, Ravelo and he like he is inclined to keep to himself anyway, and then there's this incident early on where he does help somebody out with his knowledge of herbs and then all kinds of other people start coming knocking on his door <laughs> trying to get like cures and he doesn't he just like doesn't want to be part of that herb life anymore and so he won't like help anybody. And so it just like deepens his his I separation from the me. rest of the community, yeah. Okay, so that so is now he's not cool with Ravelo. Well, he so he's like fine with Ravelo. He's doing stuff for the people around, but he's like socially just not involved in the life of this town at all. So okay. he is for fifteen years, and so he comes to this town as like a twenty-five-year-old man, and then for the next fifteen years, he weaves and he mostly keeps to himself, and he amasses this like small fortune. It's like two hundred sixty pounds or something like that. That's got to be a lot, which it probably is a lot in the in then money. And he just like keeps it under the <laughs> floorboards, and every night after he gets done working, he like takes it out and he counts it, and he's just really obsessed with it, and it's his whole entire life basically is this tiny hoard of money that he has slowly gathered over the course of 15 years so what is the tone of the writing are we judging him for being like really miserly and obsessed with money are we is he like pitiful and so we're supposed to be really sympathetic to him um he i mean definitely you get the feeling earlier or like later in the book that his his miserliness is a uh is a vice but okay. you are i think you are in general supposed to feel bad for him because he got screwed over so badly by all the people who he knew sure um yeah it, um yeah it is in the early years of the century it says so so okay know that um 
It was 15 years since Silas Marner had first come to Ravelo. He was then simply a pallid young man with prominent short-sighted brown eyes whose appearance would have had nothing strange for people of average culture and experience, but for the villagers near whom he had come to settle, it had mysterious peculiarities which corresponded with the exceptional nature of his occupation and his advent from an unknown region called Northard. (laughs) So so had his way of life. He invited no comer to step across his door sill, and he never strolled into the village to drink a pint at the rainbow or to gossip at the wheelwrights. He sought no man or woman save for the purposes of his calling or in order to supply himself with necessaries. And it was soon clear to the Ravelo lasses that he would never urge one of them to accept him against her will, quite as if he had heard them declare that they that they would never marry a dead man come to life again. <laughs> This view of Marner's personality was not without another ground than his pale face and unexampled eyes. For Jim Rodney, the mole catcher, averred that uh, one evening as he was returning homeward, he saw Silas Marner leaning against a stile with a heavy bag on his back instead of resting the bag on the stile as a man in his senses would have done. And that on coming up to him, he saw that Marner's eyes were set like a dead man's and he spoke to him and shook him and his limbs were stiff and his hands clutched the bag as if they'd been made of iron. But just as he had made up his mind that the weaver was dead, he came all right again, like, as you might say, in the winking of an eye and said, good night and walked off. (laughs) So like we get Marner cast as kind of an outcast weirdo. Yeah. Basically. And you do you do feel pity for him because like you you haven't at this point gotten that backstory yet. You get it like really soon after that and it sort of explains why he is the way he is. Oh, okay. Um, so he is he is like a pitiable figure, but are you privy yeah. to his thoughts or is Elliot not interested in storytelling that way? No, you're not in his head ever really. Okay. Um like you get it's a close third person kind of like you do get his thought processes and, and things sometimes and you do learn more about his motivations later. But most of what you learn about what goes on inside his head, you get through like him talking to people. OK, OK. Um, So you got Silas Martyr hanging out in Ravelo. Meanwhile, you got these other two guys. I need to get all my tabs with the Baldwin brothers stuff just closed <laughs> so I can do this. Um. There's this guy, there's the squire whose name is Cass, and he is the lord of the manor of Ravelo. He's like the highest nobility around these parts, I guess. Um, and he's got two sons. He's got Godfrey Cass, and he's got Dunstan Cass. Dunstan Does with it- an A, not like Dunstan checks in. Okay. <laughs> Do not make your Dunstan checks in joke, because I already thought of it. <laughs> Those are two pretty good names, though. Godfrey and Dunstan? Yeah. They're like the Bebop and Rocksteady of the century. <laughs> I guess. So Dunstan is like kind of a narrow duel, and Godfrey is always like Dunstan is just always taking advantage of him and blackmailing him, and 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 um. So Dunstan prevails on, on Godfrey, and there are a few areas in this book this one included where you just like shift to some other characters for a while and it's not clear if you're going to come back to silas or like why you're (laughs) it's like if if you're watching a tv show and there's a cutaway to another scene but instead of cutting away right to the moment where it became important to the plot of the show you also got to see like whatever those characters were doing for the 15 (laughs) minutes before that and i I guess that's that's, that though yeah I, i guess it's part of um elliot's her um her penchant for realism like you get yeah. to spend enough time with these people to have a sense of them and then you learn why they're important to the story yeah so i was reading a little bit about her process for adam reeb and i imagine there's more in middlemarch because middlemarch is set in a very specific like political time period that she does like a lot of research before she dives in and then would kind of weave that research into the fiction and in a way that reminds me of like Victor Hugo, um, and I was even remind like what you just said reminded me a little bit of what you were saying, what Susanna was saying about uh, Christo last week of like sometimes you get you get a new character and then like there's a story about that character and it involves telling a story about another character and it's just to honor these people that you're making up, right? You have to. You have to like honor where they came from, and there's even I will say there's a little bit of writing about these boys in this book uh, being a little bit inspired by some of uh, Elliot's like 
de facto stepsons from her not husband's like multi- open marriage family mm-hmm. um and whether or not she whether or not she liked them or not is up for debate and scholarly <laughs> debate uh and maybe that is embodied in the differences between godfrey and dunson i don't know so what, sure. are, what are these boys doing well how does this affect our well, story well so dunson knows something about godfrey that godfrey would rather not other people know um godfrey do you mean wh- a secret yeah a secret <laughs> uh godfrey is married to this woman named molly okay but she's an opium addict and he doesn't like he didn't like her and so he like left and he just doesn't want people to know that he had this other marriage okay but dunstan knows oh and so dunstan is always using this to get stuff out of godfrey so what happens in this instance is um dunstan convinces godfrey to let him sell a horse for him a horse named Wildfire, who is widely commented upon as like the best horse in the whole county. It's a good horse. This is <laughs> okay. one good horse. Um, so Dunstan goes out with uh, with Wildfire to go hunting, and he strikes a deal to sell the horse to this guy. But while he's doing that, he um, he does something stupid and basically impales the horse and kills it. No. Yeah. So that's cool. That's a good job. No. Um, so, so um, as he was riding out on the horse, like he, I think, happened to pass by where Silas lives. And he's thinking about like what he knows about Silas and what the rumors are. And like, if he really needed money, he reasons to himself like he could get he could make Godfrey like get a loan from Silas mm. or something. Oh, OK. Um. So what sure, happens is sense. Wildfire gets killed and Dunstan's like, well, crap, I need to get this money <laughs> now. And so he like it's it's getting really foggy and rainy out. And so he stumbles to Silas's house and Silas is not in. He's and he the, like the door is unlocked, but he's just not home for whatever reason. He's left like a pork chop near like hanging near the fire. So it will cook slowly. So it's cooked by the time he gets back, which I kind of really like. Oh my God. It's a 19th century slow cooker. Yeah, <laughs> It's called a hook over a fire. Yeah. That's, I mean, they, the technology advanced later, but it's the same basic idea. So Dunstan has checked into Silas's place. <sighs> yes. Dunstan has checked into Silas's place. You idiot. And he, like basically convinces himself that Silas must be dead because why else would his house be empty? And he'd have left that pork chop there. I get yeah. And so there's this whole weird there's this is the whole thought process that Dunstan goes through because he seems like a little drunk and maybe half crazed from from his killing a horse. From killing a horse, you know, like you do. Um <laughs> So let me read you some Dunstan. Let's just check okay. in with Dunstan real quick. Yeah, let's, um, please. If the weaver was dead, who had a right to his money? Who would know where his money was hidden? Who would know that anybody had come to take it away? He went no farther into the subtleties of evidence. The pressing question, where is the money, now took such entire possession of him as to make him quite forget that the weaver's death was not a certainty. A dull mind, once arriving at an inference that flatters a desire, is rarely able to retain the impression that the notion from which the inference started was purely problematic. And Dunstan's mind was as dull as the mind of a possible felon usually is. Elliot rules. That is a great <laughs> burn of like how you wield, how how dangerously uh, you can wield stupidity. <laughs> yeah. Uh, man, that's pretty good. So Dunstan swipes this money. He finds it buried under some floorboards because Silas has not hidden it super great. Um, like, it's pretty obvious where it is. Um, so he grabs the money and leaves, and you don't know what happens to Dunstan after that. But the point is that Silas comes back, because of course he wasn't dead. He, like, had stepped out to go get him some get some supplies or something. And he came back. And, get some herb. Yeah, and, and because, like, the because of the way he had hung the pork shop, like, he couldn't lock his door. And so he figured he had to let the smoke out through the lock. I I, I don't know, man. (laughs) And so he figured, you know, I'm going to be gone for 20 minutes. Like nobody, nobody comes to visit me. Like this is going to be fine. It's not going to be a big deal. 
But this money that was pretty much the only thing keeping him going is gone now. Huh. And so he, like, desperate to have the thief caught, stumbles into the local bar and starts talking to people. And they are all like, is this a ghost? Like, are you crazy? Like, what is, <laughs> what is going on? And so it becomes this whole incident throughout the town. And this thus begins the slow, like, reintegration of Silas into this community. How um, Do they, like, take care of him? Well, so, here's, he... so here's a passage. I've got a passage for you. I oh, please. Okay. okay. Um, and this is, like, people are coming to see him. And uh, they had to knock loudly before Silas heard them. But when he did come to the door, he showed no impatience as he would once have done at a visit that had been unasked for and unaccepted unexpected formerly his heart had been as a lock casket with its treasure inside but now the casket was empty and the lock was broken left groping in darkness with his prop utterly gone his prop being the gold of course mm-hmm, that was mm-hmm. taken from him silas had inevitably a sense though a dull and half despairing one that if any help came to him it must come from without and there was a slight stirring of expectation at the sight of his fellow men a faint consciousness of dependence on their goodwill and okay. simultaneously the people in the town like they 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 pity him as somebody who who might not all like be all there yeah. but also they recognize like the only thing in this guy's life has been taken from him and it's obviously like devastated him so they start to sort of reach out to him and he's having this realization that well nobody can be helping him for selfish reasons cuz he doesn't have anything to give them <laughs> i suppose yeah so... but like there's a there's the book insists that the people of Ravelo mostly are like rustic and not always especially sensitive, but essentially like good natured. Like and Dunstan's their only flaw. Right. Like, okay. Right. So once Dunstan is checked out, sure. They can they can then come in and kind of fill this void. <laughs> There's a um I guess I can talk about the the role that church plays in this in this book in a little yeah, bit. Yeah, I was I was going to ask about that. Like is that a presence in Ravelo because it was such a huge part of his uh pariahship? That's not a word. Yeah, so there's um, like it's a it's a different sort of Christianity cuz he was Calvinist before and I don't I'm not I don't remember what these Ravelo people are. But there's this uh there's this woman who comes to see him and help him out that he slowly becomes close with called a uh, Dolly Winthrop. Okay. And she comes to him and like is trying to be nice to him and and uh give him some baked goods and things cuz she knows he's going through a hard time. And she is trying to convince him to go to church. Mm-hmm. Um and so I get like and church is used throughout this book. Like when Silas is not at church, he's kind of cut off and alone and adrift. And then as he gets closer to people, he slowly starts to go to church. And it's like church is used as a as a link to like community. And, and I, I, I've got another thing I can read you. I have a lot of passages that I highlighted. Yeah, sure. Hit me. Uh, Dear heart, said Dolly, pausing before she spoke again. But what a pity it is. You should work of a Sunday and not clean yourself. If you didn't go to church for a few, a roasting bit, it might be as you couldn't leave it being a lone man, but there's the bakehouse. If you could make up your mind to spend a two, a tough, wow. There's some, uh, <laughs> dialect in here. I'm going to start. Okay. Working. Spend a tuppence on the oven now and then not every week. Of course, I shouldn't like to do that myself. You might carry your bit of dinner there for it's nothing but right to have a bit of some at hot of a Sunday and not to make it as you can't know your dinner from Saturday. But now, upon Christmas Day, this blessed Christmas is as ever coming. If you was to take your dinner to the bakehouse and go to church and see the holly and the yew and hear the anthem and then take the sacrament, you'd be a deal the better, and you'd know which end you stood on, and you could put your trust in them, as knows better nor we do, seeing you had done what it lies on us all to do. (laughs) Dolly's exhortation, which was an unusually long effort of speech for her, was uttered in the soothing, persuasive tone with which she would have tried to prevail on a sick man to take his medicine or a basin of gruel for which he had no appetite. Silas had never before been closely urged on the point of his absence from church, which had only been thought of as a part of his general queerness, and he was too direct and simple to evade Dolly's appeal. Hmm. So it's Dolly saying, you know, church is good for what ails you, basically. 
Yeah, come like, hang and out and with she's us. trying not to be too pushy about it. She's like, "Oh, I, you know, I understand why you wouldn't go because you're alone. You're all by yourself, and you might have stuff that you can't leave unattended. But, like, you know, come on up and and eat with us, and and things will things will feel a little better." Yeah, was she saying that? Like, I understand that you like to slow cook on Sundays, but like, you could still come to church. Something it's, like that. I think. Okay, but yeah, I I see what you're saying in that it's. Like it's not about you like, need you to know, come. spend a little, spend a little money buy some food from the big house and then come on up to church come hang yeah out. you don't you don't it's not she's not making a case for like you need to get right with the Lord she's like you just need to spend some time with yeah people. she just like sees this guy is hurting and she's like here's what here's what I think would be helpful and okay it's, and it's church okay um and how does he and he starts going uh, not right away no um. But there is okay, so the money gets taken. Yeah, things are bad. Things are bad. So at Christmas and New Year's, like there's this big party going on up at the uh, cast residence where the squire and Godfrey are still hanging out, and they like they still know where Dunstan is, but he's mm-hmm. been known to like hair off for periods okay. of time and then come back like unannounced, I guess, and um. We get this sequence of this woman, and it turns out to be Molly, Godfrey's secret wife, Uh-oh. coming with a child, like trying to make it through the snow to this party because she knows they're going to be having a party. And she's going to like she really, really resents Godfrey, even though it is opium that's kind of got her caught up in its clutches. Yeah. And um, like Godfrey is is worried about this because he's trying to uh, entice this woman named uh, Nancy, who is who ends up being his second wife. But he doesn't want Nancy to like find out that he has a secret first wife. So this is like a moose. Like what is that? Like Bull Moose Lodge situation? Like he has. Does I he do have not to know deal? what that means? I think that's a. That might be a Flintstone. Is that another reference? monkey? Another monkey movie? It's not a monkey movie. Does he have to like, can he see her coming in the snow and he's like, Nancy, don't look out the window. No, so what? No, it's not like that. So what happens is you get this scene of Molly like falling down and freezing to death. Oh, gosh. With this baby like that she's holding and the baby wakes up and like, you know, squirms away and in the snow, in the snow and walks to Silas's house. Okay. He happens to have stepped out again just for a sec. <laughs> and the baby gets in there and like falls asleep next to his hearth. And um Silas is a little nearsighted, so the first thing he sees of this kid is uh her like golden curls, like her hair. Mm-hmm. And he thinks for like a split second, oh my gold's back. It's my gold. I miss my Whoa. gold so much. Come back, gold. I Check love you. out this I baby love you, gold. shaped Check out this baby-shaped pile of gold that came into my house. And then he finds out that it's a little baby girl. She's like two years old-ish. Okay. Um, and he quickly like something moves in him, and he's and he so he follows the baby's footsteps back to where the mother has died, and Godfrey knows that it's Molly because she has the wedding ring on. Um, but nobody else knows who this is because Dunstan okay. is the Dunstan is the only one other one who knew about Molly and Dunstan is is Ow. MIA for the yeah moment. okay, um, but he knows that this baby is his daughter, but because he doesn't want Nancy to know that he had a secret wife, yeah he can't claim he this can't kid say anything. So Silas like is moved by this kid and decides you know i'm going to i'm going to raise her as my own and i'm going to like do right by this kid okay and so if the if the people around him in the town had sort of started to sympathize with him a little bit because he was so lost after the money theft incident like that he would take in this this child and like raise her as his own like endears him to them even more now he's a stand up guy yeah, he's not so just like, a sad guy. Yeah, he's slowly becoming integrated in, into the community, and then you've got this sixteen-year uh, time jump. Oh, okay. And you you get a few stories about about. So the baby's name is Epi, sure, um, which is short for a biblical name like Hef Hefizba or something. Sh- I'm yeah, not sure how yep. to pronounce that one. H E P 
H-I-Z-I-B-A-H. Yeah. So had a baby. Had a baby. It's a boy. No, stop. <laughs> stop it. Okay. Stop it forever. <laughs> so there are some scenes of of him raising Epi, and it's it's very cute. So we get the sixteen year chi- time jump, and we're like we're walking out of church, and oh, and here comes Godfrey Cass and Nancy, who he got married to, and here comes. Uh, Silas and Epi and she's like a beautiful young woman now and and she and Silas like depend on each other a lot and they they really love each other and even though he you know he has been very open with her about like I'm not your real dad like because she wanted to know about her mother yeah of course and so he tells her what he knows about her mother and she just doesn't know who her father is. Like, obviously there needed to be some father at some point, but yeah. Yeah. Um, and Silas has the, the wedding ring that was on her finger. Oh, sure. Because okay. I guess it just like goes with a baby or whatever. And, and here comes, uh, Aaron Winthrop, who is one of Dolly Winthrop's sons. And he, like, we met him as a little kid earlier in the book, but now he's this stand up young guy who wants to come over and help out a lot. And he's obviously interested in, uh, in Epi. And it's like a very picturesque little existence. Like, they are, they are not super well off, but, um, Godfrey has, has, like, the community has surrounded Silas and, like, helped give him stuff when he needed it. Because cool. he was raising this baby and because all his money got stolen and Godfrey has been like very mysteriously pretty open handed and like <laughs> donating help to him for whatever reason. Okay. Um, and so what what ends up happening is that um, they are draining this lake, I guess, like a smallish lake for farming purposes, I think. And what do they find at the bottom of this lake but a skeleton? And it's, it's Dunstan, complete Whoa. with like his brother's whip that he took on that day that he went out and all of Silas's money. Whoa. Um, so we find Dunstan, and this sets off a chain reaction of events where Godfrey, like he he and he and Nancy feel bad that they're related to a criminal first, because that's just like you, you have to went. feel bad it's like about that, that is yeah. that is dishonorable Duh. in and of itself well that's okay and um so and so godfrey tells nancy like they can't have a kid they had um like a i think they had a kid and it died or she miscarried a couple of times but she like they are childless and so he had pressed her a couple of times like i want to adopt epi i want to adopt this this kid that the weaver is bringing up because like we could give her a really good life and, and whatever. And she was, she resisted it because she is like, if God wanted us to have a kid, we would just, we would have a kid. And if we yeah. try and force it, like it won't end well for us. Okay. Um, and so he sits down with her and tells her the whole story. Like he had this other wife and Epi is his daughter and she is. And he says, if I told you at the time, you know, you never would have married me. And she and she basically says, you know, I don't know what I would have done at the time, but I wish you had told me this before, because then I wouldn't have like shut you down like before when you tried to when you want it, when you very wanted to adopt kind Epi. of her. Yeah, sure. they both, like they take it. She takes it in stride. She basically says, like, you've been really good to me for 15 years. And this like doesn't erase that. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, that's yeah those you know he could have done a bad thing and then become a good guy yeah and godfrey's sure. not like he's not a great guy but he's not a, he's not a bad guy either like he is he does have a self-awareness to him and he does worry about this kind of stuff um so they then go to silas who is like they he knows who the thief is now and he has the gold and it doesn't have the hold on him that it once did but you know, his he's got a daughter who is 18 and who is going to get married soon. And it's just like, it's good that this money came back to them because they can use this money. Sure. Um, so um, Godfrey and Nancy both come to Silas's and basically say, hey, we want to adopt Epi because she is my daughter. Whoa. And like, we can't like we really like you've done a really great job and she can come and see you anytime but we want to like give her the best life we can. And wouldn't it be such a relief for you to have like 
to just know that she's being taken care of. And they both ba- they both basically say, thanks, but no thanks. <laughs> Silas is <laughs> Silas basically says, like, if she was your daughter, why didn't you speak up 16 years ago and take it instead of like coming now when we like so obviously love each other and like. I'm the only person she's called father since she was able to say the word, he says. Wow. Okay. Um, yeah. And so Godfrey and, and Nancy, like they, they part amicably enough insofar as they are not going to press the issue. Like Epi and Silas both obviously want to stay together because that's just like, that's who her father is now. Yep. Yep. Um. So like Godfrey ends up like, paying for her wedding but being out of town when it happens because it's just like too sad like he's still kind of trying to do right by her to the extent that he that is possible for him but like being around is not going to be fun yeah for right. him yeah but yeah it's, it's it's got like a happy ending like like epi and aaron winthrop get married and they're all they're all doing great and that's the end of the book pretty much like it's it it is you very... said he goes back and the and the there's like a factory though. Why does he go back to? Yeah, his... there's um. He takes Epi with him to like go back, and he wants to. He wants to see where he you know was is from and how it's changed, but he also harbors in the back of his mind like this possibility that, in the years since he left, evidence that he didn't commit that crime may like, have, have surfaced. Mm, okay. And like, if there is something to go back there and salvage, like he wants to do it, but he goes and there's like a factory and nobody knows like the, the church or any of the people at it. So we basically never find out whether he was exonerated of that stuff or not, but he's got this very happy life in, in a uh, Ravelo and like, he's not super close to anybody, but he is, you know, he is a member of the community and everybody loves Epi and, and everything's going to be good for them. And that's the end of the book. It's a nice huh. little uplifting little ending for, cause things for a... so clearly have broken bad here. <laughs> <laughs> well, and things went real bad a number of times. Yeah. 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 So like what, is that all about like what do you we were talking a little bit about this book kind of straddling the line between Eliot's realism and I don't know that there's like a political point to be made with a realism in this book so I think it's more it seems like it's more about just process and and inner life and this type of community and how this community works um but then it's also, as you just said, it has this kind of fairy tale ending where, like, it all worked out for a reason. Yeah, it's so the the realism that you get, like we talked about before, I think, is in those scenes with like, and there's a scene in the bar, like where you were in this bar because Silas is going to come in here and say, "Hey, people took my money. Like, where the authority is? Like, let's like, can you help me out?" But yeah. we spend like an entire chapter in that bar, like right before he comes in where they're just like talking and you get a sense of like the <laughs> rhythm of conversation and how this one guy like tells the same story all the time and everybody in the room like knows exactly how to respond like at different parts of the story because it's just become like a sort of performance now. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Um, so yeah, the the realism is in there and in like the relationships between the characters, I think the fairy tale aspect of things is like, Hey, here's a baby on your hearth. <laughs> here's this like modern, well, modern for the time, like Job story about this guy who gets screwed over multiple times, go, has to go somewhere else, gets screwed over again, and then gets thrust into this really unique situation that turns out to be great for him. Yeah, basically. Hmm. Um, and okay. it's it's it, you kind of you get a sense of its its morals as you like its moral center like obviously it, like the church church as community thing is big um is is there a more explicit line drawn between this church and the church from his previous town not really like just just insofar as he is not familiar with the terms that this church uses and so when he says oh i've never been to church like Dolly is like, well, do you just come from somewhere without church? Like there's a, there are a couple moments <laughs> of, 
of um like a lack of understanding there i guess but it's 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 not there's not a huge deal is not made of it it does do a little bit of stuff with class like obviously um godfrey and nancy are like higher class than silas yeah than sure FBR. and the book makes clear that everybody is conscious of that like silas is like a little uncomfortable talking up to somebody who he knows to be of a higher class than him mm-hmm. and then when he gets really really fiery because he's like trying to take epi away like that's that is an important moment for that character like really, yeah. really, like really wanting something and really transcending a, a social barrier or yeah. social line, right. tran- like transgressing. And they say, that. and they say when they're trying to say, you know, we want to adopt Epi, what they use over and over is like, we're, we're higher class. We have more money. We can provide her better things. Like, That's but, so, yeah. but like the, the working class people who are all like kind to each other and try to do the right thing like they ultimately like it's not it's they those two sides aren't even really set up in opposition to each other so i can't really say that they like win the day or whatever it's more but there are like that that stuff is valued yeah i was gonna say it's not that they're set up in opposition as much as it sounds like elliot is is taking pains to be like yo these people are cool they're fine Mm -hmm. like they don't need all your rich clothes they they're like they're totally fine. The idea that it would, because that's a that's a common, like, trope in adoption stories or orphan stories of the like, well, like the, I'll birth, take the her. birth parents like swooping in and and feeling like they have a right to it because of because of blood, but or yeah, well, well and all and the reverse of like, well, you take her because you can provide for her, like. My, I can't. I am a poor. Like it's the reverse. It's the reverse of this situation, where it's like the the child is given to a family that can provide a a like a richer, literally, life for them. Mm-hmm. Um, as a and this is an interesting like rebuttal to that, which is really cool. Also, she's eighteen, so like that the whole adoption thing. I think it's a. Think that's that ship sailed, dude. Yeah, I <laughs> think it did. <laughs> I guess there maybe at the time, and I don't know if the book goes into it. Like maybe they're concerned about like when she wants to get married and like dowries and stuff. But it doesn't sound like that factors too much into this book. Um, no, not not so much. Especially okay. like because this this scene happens like right after they found that money, so they aren't even like Godfrey says, you know, that money, it's not, it's not a ton. It's not going to last forever, but they are not hurting. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, there's also the, yeah, yeah, that's it. Well, I was just going to say the other fairy tale part of it is that the bad guy got his due. Oh yeah. No, Dunstan sucks. (laughs) (laughs) You were not, you were not supposed to feel bad that Dunstan falls into a pit and dies. (laughs) Like, (laughs) Because he just causes nothing but heartburn to like anybody. <laughs> oh man! And is it clear that he just like fell in, or anything specific happened? No, to he him? just fell in. There's no foul play or anything. He just fell in like an idiot. Oh, poor Dunstan. Yeah, or not at all. Dunstan checks out. Hey. All right. Well, hey. it sounds like you. <laughs> dug the book okay i did yeah it's it's not a super long read it's one of the ones that's old enough that it's if you grab the kindle edition it's free um you do so as i was reading like you do your brain tongue can get tripped up on kind of the roundabout language sure but yeah, there's it a little also, bit of a dance happening yeah but it also like but when she delivers a burn in that language like obviously it is really really good that that Dunstan burn is some really awesome stuff. It's like that, yeah. I, I wanted. I knew when I read it that I wanted to read it because, like, dang. It's, that well, and that's to your what you just said. That's a, the reward of that roundabout language is that it kind of like circles the bullseye and then like it kind of distracts you. And then while you're looking at the thing that it's distracting you with, it punches <laughs> you in the face with a <laughs> sick burn. All right. Well, George Sickburn Elliot. Seems to have done a pretty good job. Yeah, yeah, she did pretty good. All right. Well, if uh, you, the listener at home, uh, 
have any other thoughts on George Eliot or on uh, Mr. Marner um, or other Steve Martin movies that you'd like us to reference, <laughs> you should reach out to us. Planes, <laughs> trains, and automobiles. Gosh, darn it! Cheaper by the dozen. <laughs> cheaper by the. How do they? How do they sequelize those Wait, films? Hold on, I'm gonna cheaper. You do your thing. Cheaper by okay. the dozen. Don't start two. reading in the middle of my list. Just tell me afterwards. Cheaper um, by the dozen us. two. <sighs> it's just cheaper by the dozen two. Is there not a third one? Uh, cheaper let's by see, the. There is one on. Cheaper by the Baker's no, dozen. If you look, they're at... called the Baker's, Andrew. I forgot about that. The if family's you, called the Baker's. If you look on IMDb for the page for Cheaper by the Dozen Three, it's just two guys like holding their shirts up, so you can see their abs. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Okay. I just pasted it in a Slack for you. Great. I'm going to go look at that in a second. But uh, first, I want to thank everybody who reached out to us on twitter.com slash overdue pod or facebook.com slash overdue pod. That includes Graham, Simeon, Nikki, Rebecca. It's Nicol- it's Nicolepsy, Melissa, Sean, Susie, Starfish, Jig, J. Deep, Kelly, Hannah, Liz, Tessa, Pumper, Nicholson, Lucas, Tysophine, Camille, Sophie, Yerbaswena, Mickey, Rob, Elizabeth, Philip, Daniel, Katie, Michael, Rhea, Andrea, or Andrea, I don't know, Nick, Tara, Eric, and Stacy, thanks to y'all. Uh, you can also send us emails at overduepod at gmail.com. Andrew, we have a website. Do we? You sound a little uh, unsure about that one. I haven't done this in a while. I've got some wicked jet lags. Okay, Do we okay. have a website? We have a website at overduepodcast.com. Um, up there, we've got links to iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and RSS. Those are all the ways you can subscribe to the show. What? What are you doing? That looks like Shia LaBeouf. What oh, are is you looking that? at the, You're looking at the Cheaper by the Dozen <laughs> 3 page? Yeah. <laughs> I thought it was something I said. Um, if you subscribe in iTunes, do rate and review us because it helps people find the show and it helps us rise in those rankings. Um, we've got links to uh, Amazon We've for all the books that we are reading and have read. Um, we've, what is it right now? It's like April 16th. So we're going to be posting, um, May's schedule in a couple of weeks. So we try, Actually, we yeah, try pretty soon. We, we have it ironed out. So yeah, we try and keep, uh, we try and keep a good running list of the books that we're going to be reading. So you guys can follow along. If you click on those links and buy the books from Amazon, it gives us a little cut, which helps us out. We also have a Patreon page you can find on that website or at patreon.com slash overdue pod. We're getting pretty close to uh, a, a goal of ours. Like when we get $500 a month, which we are super, super close to, we're going to do a live show somewhere. So um, that's like planned by us. That's like planned me. by us. It's not like on like a Philly Podfest people or any like we have a couple of other things in the works. But this is something that we get to put on like independently of any of that. So if you like we're, it's a, it's really early in the planning process right now, um, we are thinking either New York City or Boston, probably. Um, but if you really want us to come to your city, like let us know and maybe we can do some kind of poll or something. I don't know. Who knows? Who knows? Everything's up in the air. Uh, HeadGum, our podcast network, is also on our webpage. Spreaker, our podcast host. Um, and what are you reading next week, Craig? I am in the middle of Never Let Me Go by Kazuo Ishiguro. I'm and Ishiguro, at some point, we're going to be reading Skateboard Tough by Matt Christopher as a bonus episode. So stay tuned for all that stuff. Um, we will see you next Monday. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, thank you for your super kind response to uh, Susanna's episode last week, which made me and her both feel really good. And, yeah, it was uh, awesome knowing that the show was in really good hands. <laughs> that yeah, felt really good. Yeah, like much more prepared hands than it's normally in even. Um, so we'll we'll see you next Monday. Until then, everyone, try to be happy. That was a HeadGum Podcast.